one of the ways we were looking at was was you know sync licensing, which is the license you have to get if you want to include music in some kind of audiovisual production, in particular like a, a film or a TV show or an ad. You know, when we were looking at doing that thing, we were represented by a couple of different entities, and we were looking at this process. And, and the process really we saw was difficult for both sides, right? You know, so it's difficult for independents uh, of all all kinds to find access to opportunity. It's it's really difficult to figure out like who's looking for what. You as any individual entity don't necessarily have the gravitational force to to have people find you individually. My name is Kurt Beek, and I'm the CEO, CTO, and co-founder of SyncFloor. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Kurt Beek created a platform Nay, the corpus of commercial independent music. All this and more on Code Story. Kurt Tabik is originally from Trinidad, off the coast of Venezuela. He came to the States to study computer engineering at the University of Miami. On the way to attending grad school at Stanford, he did an internship at Microsoft. And after being offered a full-time job there, he took it and subsequently never made it to Stanford. He started out in a role on the OS team, but after spending 20 years at the company, he did many types of roles, including general manager over several different divisions. He loves to play soccer and dabbles in chess. Above all, he loves his firstborn son, who recently celebrated his first birthday. Also, and to no surprise given his most recent venture, he loves music, listening to music, making music, and helping artists. When he left Microsoft, he found himself deeply involved with the people in the music community in Seattle. He had seen the independent scene go through much disruption, and he decided to help artists by starting a label. Through the label, he learned and saw the gaps in the music industry and decided to set out to try and fill those gaps. This is the creation story of SyncFloor. So SyncFloor is a couple of things. SyncFloor is a platform for connecting all sorts of people, website services, applications into an amazing, beautiful corpus of commercial independent music. That platform we've used to implement sort of two applications. One of them is, is what you see when you go to SyncFloor.com, which is a marketplace of commercial music for use in film, TV, ads, podcasts, games, et cetera, et cetera. And so there we you know, sort of target production professionals, producers, editors, music supervisors, that type of thing. They come to that marketplace, to that site, and they're able to do you know, a search, very intuitive, fun, productive search, which is built on technology that we developed and is now patented called natural language music search. Um, they can use that and our discovery metaphors to find music that matches the creative that they care about to lift their narratives and their productions. We uh, also built another application called songsforpodcasters.com, which is more specifically oriented to people who are independent podcasters, small business podcasters, and things like that. And there you can think of it as taking sort of what we built with singflow.com and simplifying it for that particular audience and removing some of the knobs and making it sort of more customized to that audience. 
on that platform, we enable some really great uh, technology, very akin to what Shopify does for people who want to do digital retail. We allow our commercial independent music partners, labels, publishers, etc., to have their own storefronts built on our technology for music licensing for productions. And so they can have, you know, sort of sync stores integrated into their domain and website. They can actually have different aspects of that. We disaggregate that part of the platform so you can directly connect into artist pages or directly to song pages for specific commerce uh, for licensing. For me, what happened is that uh, when I left Microsoft, um, at the time, sort of, you know, towards the end of my tenure, tenure there, I had been fairly deeply involved in, in and connected with, you know, people in the artistic community, particularly music community in Seattle. And, you know, I'd seen, you know, particularly the independent music community go through a lot of disruption and, and figure out how to deal with that disruption and find new ways of, of expressing themselves and, and trying to, to use music as a platform to both connect and express, as well as to make a living from that. And I really felt that given everything was happening, I wanted to find a way to help that audience. The way I, I chose to do that was to start a, a small independent music label. And that's where my co my current co-founder and I, we had met working on various large projects at Microsoft, uh, myself as, a, as someone on the technical side leading various kinds of deals and her on the IP and transaction side as a legal outside counsel. When I wanted to start this label, I left Microsoft, left my full-time job there, decided to start this music label and asked her to help me with the legal side of things. And so we both sort of ended up learning the music business together where, you know, what I really cared about was having a set of principles around the music label that were very, very friendly and artist uh, forward. And those are things that, that are a little bit more par for the course now, but at the time it was very, very different. And so when we came out and said that, hey, we wanted to have artist majority splits for everything. We wanted to have no lock-in. So it was always by project. So you're not locked in for a number of years or a number records that it was an investment not alone so that you you were able to see revenue immediately versus having to pay through um, and a, a recoup all those types of principles and more were the things that we founded the label around and you know through that learned the music industry and learned all the gaps that that I felt still plagued the independent music community and and sync floor was was a, a, you know a way of trying to help address a certain you know segment of that well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me about how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. So, you know, it's, a, it's interesting because this is one of those things that it took a while because as we were thinking about different ways that you monetize, you know, music IP as such, right? So so the art that people create is, you know, sort of represented by, by you know, IP um, in both the composition and the recording. And, and as a label, you're trying to help the artist find ways to different ways to monetize that. One of the ways we were looking at was, was you know, sync licensing, which is the license you have to get if you want to include music in some kind of audiovisual production in particular, like a, a film or a TV show or an ad uh, and things like that. The, you know, when we were looking at doing that thing, we were represented by a couple of different entities and we were looking at this process. Uh, and the process really we saw was difficult for both sides, right? You know, so it's difficult for independents uh, of all, all kinds to find access to opportunity. It's, it's really difficult to figure out like who's looking for what. You as any individual entity don't necessarily have the gravitational force to, to have people find you individually. 
If you're on the other side, it's actually also really painful because you have some creative idea um, that you'd like the music to fulfill, but you kind of have to figure out where to send that to. And, and it's a very manual process of, you know, sending out emails and making calls and getting, you know, results and collating, you know, you know, collating them together and then digging through those crates yourself and, and things like that. And so when we saw that end-to-end -end process and we saw, you know, sort of the pain points on both sides, this idea kind of, you know, sort of came up with, of, of trying to find a way to aggregate interesting commercial independent music and then provide seamless discovery and workflow and licensing to that ecosystem and, and uh, make that process a lot more uh, simple and straightforward and fun in terms of, of trying to find music for production. Given that, what one of the things we thought about was that, you know, a, a big differentiating thing if you were going to go after that is to is to create a great form of discovery like when you think of especially as it gets to scale right the kind of discovery we were thinking about was sort of professional music discovery when we looked at what was actually happening what people were doing is essentially sending you know blobs of text around saying you know i'm looking for something that fits these sentiments and, and perhaps uh, matches these kind of artistic references or song references and things like that you know, the idea was like, wow, what if we could take that desire, that request for music as expressed in this natural creative description, interpret it in a way that we could actually come back with real-time results and real-time results with transparency, i.e. having taken that, you know, expression and sort of teased it apart and converted it into some taxonomy that allows you to do sort of great search. When you return results, explain why that, that, that stuff has come back the way it has so that somebody could then iterate over those results in a productive fashion. Because there's still this idea that you need creative ear time to make sure it actually matches, right? So that, that was sort of became the problem, the, the front door to all the rest of the stuff that we were gonna build. That sort of bumped us up straight against this idea of natural language music search. And that's a really deep problem. And so I think uh, we, we before we got to the point where we felt, hey, you know what, we, we really should try to start thinking about productizing this and trying to work to build a content ecosystem around it. We spent a good year and a half, <laughs> you know, on, on the order of that, uh, working on the, the sort of deep technology. And, and like I said, that was uh, the patent for that was granted in December, I think, something like November, December last year. Whenever you're building an EMVP, right, you've got to, you know, you've got to make certain trade-offs, you know, decisions and trade-offs on what you should cut in the short term or, you know, technical debt or anything like that. In the MVP, what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make and how did you cope with them? One of the first things that you end up as a, I think, as a small startup having to cope with is is sort of lack of resources. So you're essentially trying to figure out, and you know, sort of in the definition of MVP, you're you're trying to figure out what the through line is that gets you the most impactful, you know, sort of end-to-end -end scenario so that you can express and articulate the idea, right? The big idea that somebody's gonna gonna wanna hook onto and that you may wanna you're you're able to get customers to help you validate and you're gonna help get investors to help you build out. And, you know, the first thing was 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 trying to figure out. Okay, well, having built some really deep technology, having built this this engine, how are we going to express it end to end enough such that people got it? You have to kind of figure out what to cut out of what will eventually be the overall ecosystem. Given that, right there, there are sort of good shortcuts and bad shortcuts. The thing we took on that paid dividends later was that we thought about it as building a platform. 
the idea was that whatever sort of application, whatever marketplace application we would eventually build, however much of that, however narrowly we, we ended up wanting to define that in the first you know, sort of iteration, we wanted to make sure that we were building that on a platform that could over time be broad enough that it allows us some flexibility to do different things. And we ended up being really happy about that because not only could we build things like SingFlora.com, we could build songs for podcasters, we could uh, enable Sing stores, things like that in, in a reasonably straightforward way as we continue to expand our remit because we thought of it as building something that we ourselves could build upon. And then later on, something other people could build upon. So that, that I think that was a really important thing to go ahead and take on. In terms of the, the shortcuts you take, that ends up being very much either technically related to just reducing the end-to-end the -end scenario. So in our case, our first target was to say, hey, could we help people mine their own catalogs? And, the, and that, that turned out to be a good thing from a business perspective, right? Because anytime you build a marketplace type uh, product or platform, you have this sort of chicken and egg of, of trying to figure out how to build supply and demand. A lot of times what you do is you try to figure out ways to get people on the, the, the supply side to want to use your thing independent of that demand because almost as a tool. And then if they can start adopting it as a tool and the thing you get is bringing their content into your ecosystem, you can slowly build up enough of a corpus that you can attract interesting demand. So, you know, from that point, you started progressing the product, right? And maturing the product. How did you go about building your roadmap and figuring out this is the next most important thing to build? You start off with some vision for where you're going and you're sort of building those blocks. But as you know, as you encounter customers, it's sort of, um, what's the uh, saying, right? Uh, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face kind of thing. Is that, that's the, the saying, right? And and so you start, you start with this like, oh, okay, this is what we're building. This is what makes sense. Then you come up against, you know, customers and customers say, oh, but this is the thing that I think is really cool in what you've built. And you have to kind of decide, okay, well, is that really along the path of the vision or or is that like not really what I'm trying to do? And I have to think about re-articulating where the value is. But a lot of times you're, you know, especially in a startup, you're trying to find that fit. And so a lot of it is about listening to customers and really trying to discover based on what they're telling you, what parts of your vision really are the, is, is the big thing. So then let's flip to team. So how did, how did you go about building your team? You know, and I think I'm interested in what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. With any startup, it's great to have balance in terms of the founding team. You know, sort of, uh, so my co-founder, Sejan, like, we, you know, part of it, we've worked, we worked together for a long time beforehand. And so we kind of seen that we had a great working relationship, including under pressure as such, right? And because that's something that you really want to, you know, sort of look to your left, look to your right and feel like the people that are walking with you know how to deal because you're going to have to deal with a lot of things, a lot of pressure, a lot of changes, a lot of ups and downs as you do any startup. It starts with that founding team. And, and I'm very, very lucky to, to have Sejan McFarlane as, as my co-founder there. Uh, we've seen a lot happen over the past you know, four years now um, uh, in, in our space. Um, and continue to learn and learn together. You know, from there, you know, be, because of what we were building, I feel like there's a really important thing here, which is about, you know, making sure that you get people who have a lot of passion for the space, you know, sort of passion for the ecosystem that we're trying to help. Because, you know, we got into this first and foremost, trying to help this independent music ecosystem that we love. And so we want to find people who have that love as well. Our first hire, who's, who's our senior music analyst and leads our team of analysts, 
Benjamin Verdos, he's a musician himself, as well as ha having been a teacher. He was an artist on my music label as well. So I know that his passion for both music and for this ecosystem for independent music runs really, really deep. So, you know, finding people with that type of depth of passion for the space is really, really important. And, and I think, you know, one of the core principles that we used. In addition, you know, we have a set of things that are sort of values for us, you know, sort of how we work together, sort of the compassion with which we work together, the transparency that we have in terms of talking to each other about what's going on. Being able to have fun together is really is really important because you're going to see so much and deal with so much that you have to be able to step back and kind of laugh with each other about the things that, that are happening to make it to the next day. And so those, those are the things that are important to me. Let's talk about scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you kind of fighting this as you grow? There's a part of of me that will always try to make sure that, you know, sort of scaling is something that we keep in mind. Now, you can kind of go overboard with that too, right? You can try to, to build your thing to scale so much, so well ahead of where you actually are that you're not spending your time effectively. Essentially, there are, there, are a number, there are a number of choices that you make early on that really impact things like, for instance, scaling, that can really determine whether it's going to be a simple process or not for getting to that next unit of scale, let's say. Some of those are really obvious, especially in today's world, you know, sort of if you can make things stateless, for instance, right, that's a good thing because that helps the degrees of freedom you have. Of course, when, you're do, when you do performance, you have to have a great understanding of scenarios end to end, and you have to have great measurement because that's the only way that you really, you know, sort of churn through performance. But uh, but 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 prior to that, there are things, there are choices you make, you know, sort of architectural choices that you can make that that simply make for a better uh, scalability, right, upfront, right, um, and you know, sort of you know, stateful versus statelessness is, is again one example. You know, for us, you know, what we did is we said, okay, we're gonna take you know, our virtual boxes in the cloud, and we're gonna look at a pod of stuff like X, you know, for, for what we do. And so we already know that based on the fact that our architecture is stateless and that a pod of data and a pod of, of units of, of execution looks like a particular unit of boxes, we know that if we can replicate those boxes, we will get a certain kind of unit of scaling. And the, that's the type of thing that you, you try to think about upfront and then try as much as possible to simplify your actual execution of that for the stage that you're at. As you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built, what are you most proud of? I'm definitely really proud of the work we did to, to do natural language music search. It was a deep problem and one that, you know, sort of at the very beginning, we didn't know how well it would work. And it's worked well enough and is, is differentiated enough in, in the industry that we can look at that and say, wow, that's something really cool we did and moved the bar forward for discovery for music. And more importantly, what we could do is take that engine and layer on, you know, sort of new and, and more interesting metaphors for discovery that are very visual, new and more interesting forms of discovery that are very iterative and interactive. And that's a really cool thing because every, every day we kind of come and say, wow, well, what if we could do this new thing on top of it? And so, so I'm really proud of that. 
you know, some of what we're, what I'm really proud of is not just the sort of specific technical implementation, but the fact that by choosing to to build the system the way we've built it, we're enabling an ecosystem to come together and be represented in a new and interesting way, that independent music ecosystem. And that's something to be super proud of because I think that ecosystem has not gotten the, the attention that it deserves for the kind of beautiful music that it creates. And so um, so that's that's something that I feel really good about. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me, tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So when you have music, the rights associated with music are, are sort of caught up in two parts, right? They're, they're caught up in the, the composition and they're caught up in the recording. And to sort of give an example that might help illuminate things, if you have a cover song, a cover song is, an, is another recording on the same composition. The composition could have been created, right? You know, sort of lyrical and, and musical composition could have been created by multiple people. Because they're created by multiple people, they can be represented by multiple business entities representing each of those people. And then of course the recording could be represented by a business entity. A lot of times a business entity that represents the recording is the label and the business entity rep representing the composers are our publishers. So given that, what you could end up with is a situation where trying to negotiate the rights for a particular piece of music can get very, very involved, right? Because you have multiple stops you have to make to gather all of the, the sort of permissions and agreements and, and, and uh, agreements on the price and all those things, right? And so that's part of what makes music rights very, very complicated. And I would say that something that we eventually got to is curating content where those rights are consolidated with a single entity and it's what's called one stop in the industry and prior you know prior to a certain point early in our life in our sort of life cycle as a startup we hadn't made the decision to just curate to one stop we kind of said we can include any parts of someone's catalog and what we found is that that created a lot of of sort of problems structural problems for delivering a great user experience end to end for not just discovery, but then finally access and licensing of content. And, and that, that was you know, sort of the mistake we made was not like stepping back and looking at that entire end-to-end -end story and realizing that that was the linchpin. And then once we actually sort of figured that out, it, it ended up being a bit of a reset on our index. I think I remember at a time that we kind of decided to make this change where we said, we're going to focus on one stop. We, we were closing in, I think, 40,000 tracks in our index. And we basically had to reset the index and go back to partners and sort of start to subset from there and, and sort of really focus on on bringing in and curating partners and, and portions of catalogs that were one stop. And so the pace of, of creating that sort of slowed at first. But once we kind of started to get momentum again, what we found is that we actually have a much, much better story end to end, and that structurally we have a huge advantage for the types of things we want to do next. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? I would say that the big thing that we're leaning into now is thinking about not just sort of end-to-end -end applications on the platform like the, the marketplaces that we've built, but specific, um, specifically uh, uh, enabling new applications and services and websites and experiences to connect into this great corpus of independent music that we've curated and that we're continuing to grow. And so, so the, you know, a huge part of what we're doing now is thinking about the platform and how we extend the platform in ways that make it easy for people to connect in. Um, in addition, one of the things we're trying to also do is figure out how we get more and more efficient in terms of growing our partner and catalog ecosystem and managing that catalog and partner ecosystem. So today we have something like 70 plus 
uh, you know, label publisher partners who provide content into us. And, and that's a whole problem in and of itself to try to figure out how to manage that in a good way that's a good experience for those partners and for us and ultimately for clients who want to be able to, to search and connect into that content. And so those are some of the big problems we're trying to work on today. Let's switch to you, Kurt. Who influences the way that you work? You know, CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. So, so I'll, I'll start on a, on a really personal front, you know, um, and talk about, you know, my dad, who's, you know, one of the things I feel like I've learned from him is is to, to sort of approach situations really calmly. Perspective is a, is a really important thing to have gotten and to have learned. Um, and that comes with experience, but it also comes with, you know, hopefully people in your life who kind of teach you that, look, you know, no matter what happens, you can kind of step back and, and you know, sort of take a breath and, and remember the things that are important and then look at it with fresh eyes and, 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 and see that, you know, there, there's usually some way to think through something that lets you focus on the opportunity versus on, you know, the, the issues. Right. And so and, and that helps you work through the issues because then you're working towards opportunity. And I feel like I get that a lot from my dad. And so I'd, I'd kind of start start there. <laughs> so we talked about mistakes, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? You know, I, I've been asked this in a different context before. And the context was more of a business context. And I think it still applies though, which is, you know, the, with marketplaces, you know, especially in marketplace platforms, you, you, you know, like I said before, you have this kind of chicken and egg and you're trying to decide like, how do I, how do I get supply without demand? How do I get demand without supply? And a lot of times you start with supply first, especially if you have a way of having them, you know, sort of use your, your software as a tool to enable them, you know, prior to when you can drive independent demand. That said, if you could if you could start with demand, if you could find a way to to, to sort of uh, attract the demand side first, <laughs> I think it smooths your your path, you know, because ultimately, uh, you know, de- demand is the thing that really helps, you know, sort of kickstart the next level the next level engine as such. Having said that, you know, I think every time I've looked at it, I've thought, gosh, you know, if I could have, I would have started that way. I think. But I'm not sure how. So, so, so I'm still struggling with that as such, right? Is to figure out like how would I have started that way if I were to try to, you know, looking back at all of this. But you know, but I'm I'm still thinking about it. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazz about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there in the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Have have patience with yourself. Have patience with, uh, you know, the the have patience for the process, um, because you know whatever the big idea is, and and you know uh, as much as it will someday change the world, right? If we're going to be positive, that this is going to be a thing that changes the world. Uh, many of the big things that we've seen that change the world, you know, didn't happen overnight, right? You know, it feels like it happened overnight because you know a lot of the the lore around some of these things makes it seem that way. But when you dig in, you find that, you know, those founders, those people went through journeys that that took a long time, right? And and they had to find their way as well. And so so remember to have that patience with yourself in the process. Remember to listen a lot to 
the customers and 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 you know folks that care about you along the way, right? Because um, because there's a lot of valuable input there that can make what you're doing better and make your path better. And then remember to enjoy it. Enjoy, you know, a lot of people get into this thing because they're makers and they love building things. They love making things. And remember that that's a joy in and of itself. And, and that can help carry you through. And then, you know, I would say, finally, remember to, to enjoy the time with the people around you that are building it with you, right? You know, enjoy the team, the things that we talked about a little earlier. Um, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's, I think, what happened. That's great advice. Well, Kurt, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Sink Floor. Happy to have been here, Noah. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.